from Galatians 4.21 through 5.1. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave and one by a free woman. The son of the slave was born according to the flesh, the son of the free woman through promise. Now this is an allegory. These women are two covenants. One is from the Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one that does not bear. Break forth and shout, thou who art not in travail. For the desolate hath more children than she who hath a husband. Now we, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now. But what does the Spirit say? Cast out the slave and her son, for the son of the slave shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brethren, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand fast, therefore. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the beauty of your day and the beauty of the sacrifice of your son for our sins. We thank you for the rain that has nourished our, our land. We bless you, and we ask for more, if it's your will. Father, as we look about the world about us, and as we see the passing and going of friends and fellow Christians, the sickness and death that we have to deal with, and And at times, things seem so dark. Please help us remember not to be anxious. As Paul tells us in Philippians, the victory is ours. It's already been won. We're saved. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Our passage this morning is one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. So that should both be encouraging and challenging. Um, the encouragement is if you didn't quite understand it when you read it this morning or just now as Tom read it, you are not alone. You're not a failure. You're totally normal. Um, you can put yourself along with, you know, the top Bible and theological scholars who struggle to understand it as well. But it's also challenging for us because we can't just look away or skip over the passages of God's word that are hard or that we don't quite understand. So we need to you know, crack our knuckles and lean in and try and do the hard work of wrestling with God and with his word and trying to figure out what does this mean and what does it mean for us still here today. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to spend a lot of time just trying to walk through the passage, kind of verse by verse to make sense of it. And one of the unique challenges of this passage, what makes it so hard to understand, is this phrase where Paul is using and interpreting the Bible allegorically. So what do we do? 
do with that? Because this is unique and it seems to have some implications for how should we read and how should we interpret God's Word in the Old Testament. But even in that, sometimes we can get so distracted by that allegory that we can miss the very point that Paul is trying to make. And so it may feel like we're a little bit all over the place this morning. I'm going to try and wrestle with all of that. So what we'll do this morning is first we're kind of going to look at the setting. Um, then we'll talk about the allegory. Then we'll move into Paul's point that he's trying to make and finally Paul's application. So we'll do setting, allegory, Paul's point, and then application. This is our kind of a roadmap for what we're doing. But so first I want to just remind you of the setting of the letter and where we've been at as we've been studying and going through the book of Galatians. Because it's helpful, you know, whenever you're lost, you want to try and find a map and figure out what's going on around you. And so whenever you get lost in God's Word or you're confused, a good step is to, well, what's the context? Where have I been? Well, you know, what do I need to do here? And so our context or our setting here is to remember that the Judaizers are, are preaching a legalism gospel. Okay, so the Judaizers are preaching this legalism gospel. Again, these Judaizers, they're a group of Jews. They've come into the churches of Galatia, and they're trying to improve their preaching or fix the Galatians' theology. And Judaizers is just kind of a shorthand way to refer to them. Um, they're also called the circumcision party. Um, you can read about them more, Acts 11, Acts 15, Titus 1, and Galatians 2. So these kind of phrases are used um, interchangeably. And they oppose Paul's preaching of the gospel, and they think they are here to improve it. Paul forgot some things, and they want to add in. They think, hey, it's great, Gentiles, you put your faith in Jesus, but now you really need to make sure you're following the law of Moses. And their entire mission is to force the Galatians to become just like them, this legalism gospel. And they're distorting the gospel, and they're preaching the legalism gospel. They're preaching a gospel that requires works of the law and requires works of Moses in order to be truly saved. And Paul spent so much of his letter in Galatians trying to disprove and trying to prove that what they're doing is they're distorting the gospel. You know, over and over, he's been trying to argue that, guys, you are free. You have been set free. You're free from legalism. You don't have to do this. And so now, he begins to make a shift in this passage. And here he uses a different kind of argument, one he hasn't used yet to drive his point home. And he says this in verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Do you not hear it? He's asking the circumcision party if they really understand it at all. You know, the heart of his argument, he's using their own history and the law itself to prove that they don't understand the very thing that they seem to be so excited about. This is Paul's goal. So kind of keep that in mind as we're walking through the rest of the passages and it gets a little more complicated is they're preaching a legalism gospel and Paul is trying to show how the law disagrees with what they are preaching. And so we got the setting, but so let's focus briefly on the main phrase here in this passage that brings trouble, and that's the allegory. It's this phrase here in verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. So what do we do with allegory? Well, our second point here in your blank is that intentional allegory reveals the gospel. And I think intentional allegory reveals the gospel. Now what an allegory is, an allegory, it's a story Right? It's got a story on, on the surface, but underneath it, it's got kind of a deeper meaning or a spiritual meaning behind it sometimes. You can think about John Bunyan's famous Pilgrim's Progress. 
It's probably the most famous example of allegory. It is all about a man whose name is Christian. Just in case you don't get it, he is a Christian. And he is on his way traveling to the heavenly city. He's trying to make his way to God. And so as he's going through it, he has all of these adventures. And the whole book is an allegory for the Christian life. There's a story, but it's really about teaching you something deeper. So the main difficulty people have with this passage is Paul seems to be implying something about allegory and the Bible. It seems like Paul is saying, well, you can interpret the Bible the same way. You can interpret the Bible allegorically. And that's not a popular position today at all, right? But for much of church history, actually, this was a really popular mode of biblical interpretation. Um, it's not universal throughout church history or even among the church fathers and the early patristics. Um, but Origen is probably the most prominent of them. He was a, he was a big wig who did this. But so the method here was kind of, you know, do they read the passage, particularly the Old Testament, and then try and find out what's the hidden meaning here? What's the deeper spiritual meaning behind it? Might ask questions like, well, you know, how are the five stones David is using? What, what does that have to do with Jesus and the gospel? Or, and what is the spiritual significance of this? So they weren't trying to deny the literal meaning of the text or the passage, but they were trying to understand, okay, now that Jesus has come, what does David and Goliath have to do with the gospel? Because there, there must be something else going on here as well. Now, as you can imagine, sometimes that can get you into trouble. If you start turning over every phrase or every rock and looking for Jesus in the gospel, you might start interpreting some things kind of funky. So eventually, because this got overused and a little bit abused, kind of we, the church has moved on and we've moved more and more away from this kind of interpretation. Especially by the Reformation. The church wanted nothing to do with this. I was reading John Calvin's commentary on this passage this morning, and he goes so far to say that, well, Paul really uses a weak argument here. Um, and he doesn't mean, well, this, this is wrong. He obviously cares deeply about God's word and thinks it's true. Uh, but he dislikes allegory so much that he thinks, well, Paul's not, you know, this isn't very good, Paul. You, you could have used something better here. You know, some people even today have gone so far and against allegory, they make up their own wild interpretations. Okay, I remember sitting in class and hearing one professor in seminary who said, well, guys, you know, Paul really has unique apostolic authority to interpret the Bible allegorically. But he only did it one time and with this passage, and that's it. And no one else is allowed to do it, none of the other apostles. Don't you ever try. It was a one-time only thing. That's how we're going to kind of explain it. And so sometimes, you know, we can get so terrified of allegory that we just ignore, we're starting to explain away the basic literal meaning of God's word in order to make ourselves feel more comfortable. Uh, but here's the reality, I think. Paul is just interpreting the Bible as God meant it to be understood. Paul is not, I don't think he's just making things up. I don't think he's just using the Bible as an illustration. I think that this is an intentional allegory that God planted and planned from the very beginning before he spoke the world into existence. And that God was intentional, even in his sovereign rule over the universe, to allow events in history to unfold exactly the way that they did so that they would point towards Jesus even allegorically. And I think he was sovereign over Moses who, who wrote it down and recorded it in such a way that it would foreshadow what Paul is now talking about and what we would see even here this morning. So my point in this is that I think intentional allegory reveals the gospel. I think that there are some allegorical interpretations which are legitimate. You can focus more on the some. This isn't free range to go, you know, do whatever you want here. And you can disagree with me here, but the reason that I think this is because I think God intended it to be understood this way. 
And if God intended it, then it must be okay. Now, if God didn't intend it and we're doing our own things with the text, then we're really getting in trouble. You always get in trouble if you start making God's word mean something that God didn't mean it to mean. But so Paul is not, I don't think he's imposing his own meaning on the Bible. He's not twisting it to mean something different. He is simply bringing to light something that God intentionally put there ahead of time and now can be revealed and seen. And now that Paul's brought it to your attention, you should be able to read it again and look back and see it, obviously, and you should be able to find it as well. So any allegorical interpretation, really, it has to be evaluated, not just in if it sounds good or not, but, well, did God mean that? Is that what the authors of, of Scripture, when they wrote it, inspired by the Holy Spirit, recorded it? Is that what God meant? It can't just be based on our own creativity. It has to be on, did God intend this? And it has to reveal the gospel in Jesus. Or another way to say it is it's got to reveal Christ. You know, allegorical interpretation, it can be useful in that it helps us notice the ways that the Old Testament is continually pointing forward and foreshadowing Jesus and His coming and what would be done. And it was intentionally obscured and it was hidden and it was mysterious and they weren't ready for it yet. But now that the mystery has been revealed, when we go back, we can see how it was obvious all along. Now, I think those guard rares, right, it's got to be intentional from God and it's got to point to Jesus and point to the gospel. I think that can help us from going crazy or overboard. And even in interpreting, okay, is that a legitimate allegorical interpretation of God's word or are you just kind of getting creative and doing your own thing? Now, Wednesday night, if you want to come back, we'll, we'll go more into this. Um, I, I was tempted to spend way too much time chasing that rabbit, but I'm going to stop intentionally here. Um, but Wednesday night, we'll spend some time. I'm going to talk through you know, some good, legitimate, I think, intentional allegorical things that got planted in God's Word, intending to point to Jesus. And I'll, I'll try and show you how, why I think some of those details are meant to be that way. But, so now that we have a, a handle, I think, on what Paul is doing, well, what's his point? Okay, because his point isn't this is how you should read God's word. He's trying to make a different kind of point. And so what is the point of this allegory in this story? So the point is, in your third point here, is that legalism makes you a spiritually illegitimate child. Or legalism makes you spiritually illegitimate, if you want to go to the next point there for me, Rob. Um, because being a legitimate child of Abraham, this is what the, the Judaizers and the Jews care most about. Okay, they care about being spiritually legitimate children and descendants of Abraham. And they believe the Gentiles are illegitimate, right? Because if they're not embracing the law and legalism and circumcision, then they're not right. But what Paul is saying, guys, is that actually following the law makes you guys spiritually illegitimate. You're illegitimate children. He makes this argument by telling the story allegorically of Sarah and Hagar. And both of these women, they, they represent the two covenants that we see in 24. These women are two covenants. And verses 22, 23 gives us kind of the bare bones of the story that we need to understand for Paul's point. He says, for it is written, Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. And the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according to the promise. So we're going to break this up and talk about each woman one at a time. So first we can talk about Hagar. Now she's the slave woman. She was a slave of Abraham and Sarah. She didn't really have any choice in her relationship here. Okay, it's not really a romantic story, especially not from her perspective. She's a slave whose owner forces her to sleep with her husband so that her children can then be taken away from her and be Abraham's children. 
And the child that Abraham has with Hagar is described as being born according to the flesh. There's a lot of meaning, I think, wrapped up in that phrase. On one hand, it describes the lack of God behind this conception. It wasn't miraculous. It was ordinary. On the other hand, too, it was according to the flesh because it was sinful. Abraham shouldn't be having children with Hagar. God didn't promise children to her. He promised Abraham that he would have children through Sarah. There's multiple reasons it's sinful. I mean, doing so, it was a lack of faith. It was him not trusting God in what God said he would do and trying to get his own solution. It was a sin against God. It was also sinful because he was already married. It's an act of adultery. It doesn't matter. It was his wife's idea. It was wrong. It was a sin against Sarah, whether she liked it or not. Doing so is also sinful, again, because Hagar doesn't get a choice here. You could very easily, you could describe this as rape because slaves don't have rights. She doesn't get a vote in this scenario. So it was a sin against her. Overall, this is, is a sin. It was according to the flesh, and it was wrong. Her son, Ishmael, is an illegitimate son. He doesn't get to be an heir of the promise of God. He is not the child that God promised, and he was not brought about the way that God promised that he would come into this world. And because Hagar is a sin, she was bearing children for slavery. Her children are also born into slavery. He's not born free, and he's not the heir, either of Abraham or the promise of God. And surprisingly, at least to the Jews too here, they wouldn't like this part. Hagar is identified as being one from Mount Sinai. And then again in 25, now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. In case they didn't miss it, Paul says it twice. Now, why is she identified with Mount Sinai? Well, Mount Sinai, that's where the law of the covenant was given. Where Moses went up onto the mountain and smoke surrounded it and God spoke with him and gave him the law. In Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So Hagar, the illegitimate slave wife, represents the law that the Judaizers are so proud of. It's so excited about. And then Paul goes a step further. As if that wasn't enough, he says, Hagar corresponds to the present Jerusalem. We don't understand how quite that insulting that would be for the Jews. Because Jerusalem's the capital. They were really proud of it. Jerusalem, it's where the temple is located. It's where they make their, their pilgrimages to. They, it's where they, sing, where they would sing these joyful songs as they just ascended and walked up the hill into Jerusalem because they were so excited. This is the place where God's presence is. And Paul says, well, that's present Jerusalem. And the Jews are represented by the children of Hagar, for she is in slavery with her children. Paul, over and over, is trying to drive home this point that the Judaizers, those who follow the law, are spiritually illegitimate children. They are not legitimate children of Abraham. They are the embarrassed, illegitimate child everyone tries to forget about. That gets buried and becomes a family secret that no one wants anything to do with. That's them. That's not the Gentiles, it's the Jews. They think following the law is what gives them legitimacy. They believe that it is what marks us as true children of Abraham, our circumcision. But Paul says, you're not a child of Abraham. You are a child of Abraham, but you're Ishmael. You ain't Isaac. Hagar is the old covenant that came through Moses, and all of her children are illegitimate, and that is you. This would have pierced their hearts. It probably would have enraged them. Made them not very happy to hear that. That's only half the story. So what's the other woman? Let's turn our attention to the free woman who's Sarah. And she doesn't represent the law, but she represents the gospel. 
And she represents the freedom that comes through Jesus and through Jesus alone. And she's not a slave. She's a free woman, right? She is legitimately the wife of Abraham. She's not a mistress. She's not a slave. And her son, in verse 23, the son of the free woman was born through promise. Isaac wasn't born according to the flesh. Again, this promise, too, has plenty of meaning wrapped up in it, I think. Part of the meaning is Abraham was promised to have a child, right? We remember this. Even though he was old, he's past his prime, even though Sarah thought she was way too old to have children and they hadn't had any yet, God promised that she who was barren would be fruitful. And Sarah even laughed when God made the promise because she thought it was so ridiculous and unlikely. But God promised it. And God kept his promise. Isaac wasn't born through sinful manipulation. He wasn't born through science or the help of a good fertility doctor. He wasn't, but he was born supernaturally by the promise and the work of God and God alone. And being a son of the promise meant that he got to inherit the promises of God. He got to inherit the blessings of God. And the primary blessing of God here is that salvation is the salvation that comes through Christ alone. And that salvation would only come through this child who could trace his lineage all the way back to Abraham. Through the children of Sarah. And Sarah also represents in verse 21 the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. Now the Jerusalem above... It sounds like that's a reference to the Jerusalem that's in heaven. Not the earthly Jerusalem that's down here you can go visit today and walk around, but the Jerusalem that will one day come back down to us. The true Jerusalem is not the earthly Jerusalem here. The earthly Jerusalem here is but a pale shadow. A pale shadow. It is just a preview of the true story that is to come. You can read more about the new Jerusalem and the Jerusalem above in the book of Revelation in chapter 20. It's a city with no weeping or mourning. It's a city with no violence, no death, no weapons of any kind. There will be no news in this city of a friend who has just passed away. There will be no sickness, no aching, no pain, no more loss or suffering. It's the place of perfect peace and of sinlessness place where you no longer do what you wish you wouldn't do and you can't believe that you did again. That's the Jerusalem above. That's the place we want to be at. That's the place we want to be from. It is greater than anything down below. And that is the Jerusalem that we are citizens of. Citizens of the kingdom of heaven. It's the Jerusalem we should long to go to and to visit as the better Jerusalem. And that Jerusalem is Sarah and her children. The covenant that Sarah represents is not the old covenant from Moses, but the new covenant from Christ's blood. It is the covenant that we remember as we eat the bread and we drink the cup from communion and Eucharist. It is the covenant that alone brings salvation through faith alone in Christ alone. That is the covenant that she represents. And Paul then quotes, uh, and he quotes Isaiah 51 or 54, 1 here in verse 27 to describe Sarah. And he says, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of one who has a husband. There's a lot going on here, and what it is is Sarah's the barren one. She'd never been in labor. Her womb had been empty and never had children. Her life felt desolate, embarrassing at her time, and she was probably desperate. 
But Paul quotes this to say that the children of Sarah are greater than the children of Hagar. Sure, Hagar had hers first, but they're not the recipients of salvation and the promise and the blessing of God. Allegorically, and what Paul means, he means that the church, the Gentile Christians who have put their faith in God alone are greater and are more blessed than the Jews who are just following the law and think that's what they need to do. Ultimately, this whole story in this allegory, it means that the Galatians who follow Christ are free and are the true Israelites. They are the true children of the covenant and the promise and of Abraham. And the Judaizers are not Jews at all, but are Arabian Ishmaelites and illegitimate children. That's what Paul says they are. There's a profound irony and a tragedy here. The Judaizers who are so proud of their circumcision their earthly heritage, of their lineage, their ability to keep the law, but their dedication to those things makes them lose the very identity that they crave. The true son of Abraham follows Christ. The true daughter of Abraham follows Christ, not the law. And this legalism, what it does is it ends up robbing you of your identity in Christ as an adopted child of God. Instead of accepting the free gift of adoption, you're trying to earn it through your goodness, and that's what makes you a slave. I actually, um, I know an acquaintance, believe it or not, um, who's become convinced recently that the Mosaic law still applies and is applicable to Christians. And that Christians need, need to and must obey all the commands that God gave to Moses. Um, and my f first kind of response, other than just shock, was confusion as well. They, you know, read the book of Galatians. Um, kind of seems to be Paul's whole point here. And that's what the Judaizers are trying to tell the Galatians. No, that's good. But if you really want to follow Jesus, you've got to follow Moses. You've got to do all of our stuff. And over and over and over again, Paul says, no, 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 no. The law, legalism are not required, and it's not even better. You don't have to follow this. And we can all shake our heads and we kind of laugh at that kind of foolishness. Um, but if we're honest, we are all tempted somewhere to start adding other requirements other than the ones Jesus gave us to salvation. We, and we need to ask ourselves honestly, where do we believe that Christians, well, if you don't do this thing, then you must not be really saved. Even though Jesus never told you to do this, but I, I, but I think it's really important, so maybe you should. We might not go all in like that, but we are tempted to, to move in much quieter, slow ways to embrace these lies. But legalism and following the law, it makes you spiritually illegitimate. But it doesn't stop there. Because legalism cannot stand the freedom that other Christians experience. Which leads us to our last point here. Is that legalism leads to persecution. Legalism leads to persecution. And what I mean by this isn't that um, being, following legalism will lead you to being persecuted. But following legalism will lead you to persecute others is what it does. Paul begins this last section. He continues the allegory in 28. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. He reminds them again, you are Isaac, in case it's not clear, because of your faith. The law-following legalistic Judaizers, they're Ishmael. And if you remember in Genesis, Ishmael and Isaac did not get along. Verse 29, but just as that time when he who was born according to the flesh, that's Ishmael, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. Isaac persecu Ishmael persecuted Isaac and opposed him, and so also it is now. 
So this persecution is continuing right now. This, it's a story that continues in Galatia. The Judaizers are enslaved to the law, and they cannot stand the Galatians' freedom. They hate them, and they oppose them. And what Paul does is he frames this whole argument they're having in their churches as a form of persecution. It's not a debate. It's not just a disagreement. And again, there's irony here. The Judaizers have become what they hate. They're not improving the faith of young believers. They're not teaching good advanced seminary classes on how to follow Jesus. They are actually persecuting the faith. They are opposing the church and they are opposing the gospel of Christ. That's what they are doing. The reality is that really we can see this and have probably experienced this as well, that legalists are almost never content to just follow their own convictions. Okay, it's not enough that they don't drink a drop of alcohol. It's you need to stop too. Okay, it's not enough that they think maybe it's sinful to watch television, but also nobody else should do it either if you're a real good Christian. My experience, which I'm sure mirrors yours, really legalists truly are persecutors. They want to argue with anyone and everyone about how your freedom in Christ is wrong and you need to be just like them. You need to adopt all of their rules, and if you don't, you're clearly not as spiritually mature and advanced as they are. I think it's helpful for us to recognize that on some level, as Paul is saying, these legalists, they're not just divisive people. They're not just argumentative people who need to get a grip. Really, they're persecutors of the faith. Just as was then, so also it is now. That persecution continues. So how should we respond to persecutors, right? Should we buy them some good books? Should we uh, enter into some good debates with them and kind of go back and forth on the merits of their position and ours? Um, should we send them maybe some good sermons or some blog posts uh, that will really destroy their arguments and then they'll, they'll agree with us that we've been right all along? Uh, well, look, look at verse 30. What does Paul say? He says, well, what does the scripture say? Always a good place to turn to. Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the sons of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. In verse 5, 1, for freedom he has set us free. Stand firm. Don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. Paul says, cast them out. Get those people out of your life. Possibly out of your churches. These Judaizers don't have any place in the church of Galatia. They're not spiritually mature. They don't need to be deacons. They don't need to be elders because of their great advanced spiritual wisdom. They need to take a hike. Cast them out. And the application for us too, I think, is similar. Is we shouldn't have anything to do with persecutors. That they, we should have nothing to do with them. We need to get rid of those, those people who put legalistic requirements on every single person around them. Ultimately, they're opposing the church and they're opposing Jesus and the gospel. They're not a help. Now, this doesn't mean, right, that everyone needs to be on the same page everywhere, right? Because in this room, if we went around and shared our opinions on a lot of things, it might quickly descend into an argument because we'll discover, oh, wait, we're not all on the same page, right? We all have different convictions on how to best apply many of these principles that God gives us in his word. And, well, how, does, how do we live this out? Or how does this, how does this look in my life? What should we do? What is the wisest way for Christians to live? And there are lots of places we are allowed to disagree and maybe even should. But you're not allowed to put other people in bondage and make them submit to your conviction that isn't clear in Scripture. You might think it's really clear, but, if they're, but they're not all quite as clear as you think it is, I, I believe. 
You can't just come and start to force other people to, to agree with your extra-biblical legalistic opinion. That kind of person needs to be cast out, is what Paul says. He's an example of this, right? So there's someone who just tries to put these legalistic commands on you. Um, I had somebody who was really angry with me once um, because I would just talk about the Christian calendar every now and then. Um, and I didn't demand that everybody in the church would follow it. I'd just point out different days. Hey, you know, Jesus, he ascended on Thursday. That's just cool. Let's just take a moment and think about that. You know, and so I just point out moments that it had been encouraging in my faith and ways that just helped me to follow, you know, God's calendar instead of just the world's and, you know, our consumerism's calendar. But this person got really angry with me. They came and they started demanding, you know, that I don't ever say the word Lent or even Christmas again because they had some, you know, some pagan background behind it and it really convicted them and they were just really bothered by it. And so they wanted me to submit to their convictions. And eventually they just left the church because they were so angry with me over that. That's legalism. Their conviction doesn't have to be mine and it doesn't have to be yours. It doesn't have to be anyone's because God's not clear on that. Now, on the other side, too, another way to be legalistic was if I came up and I started demanding, okay, everyone, throw away your old calendars. I've got some good TBF church calendars, and you better follow that one. Or you're in sin, and you're not really a Christian anymore, and I'm going to cast you out. Okay, if I started forcing you all to fast for Lent or tell you you're a really bad Christian if you don't pay attention and call it Advent instead of Christmas, okay, that would also be legalism, and that, too, would be persecuting you for your faith. Now, both sides, that makes you a persecutor of the freedom that we have in Jesus. Okay, we are free to follow Jesus and not the law. We are free to follow the commands of Jesus and not the commands of other people. And listen, Jesus gave us plenty of commands. I don't know if you know this or not. Sometimes people make it seem as if Jesus just said, you know, just do whatever you want, whatever makes you happy, you be. That's not really the Jesus that I read about in the Gospels. Okay, our freedom from legalism doesn't mean you just get to do whatever you want to do. I don't want to give you that impression either. There's tons in the Bible we have to be obedient towards. And I'll speak for myself here, but I have a hard enough time with the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, I haven't mastered it yet. I'm not even done with the Beatitudes. I'm still wrestling with how to, to figure and apply many of those to my life in a consistent way that is perfect. So I don't really need any extra commands from you, okay, because I'm struggling there. I don't think I can handle what else you want to throw on me. Okay, so... Yes, legalism sets us, will enslave us, but it doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. We still need to obey what Jesus has for us. And there's more than enough there to take up the rest of our lives as we wait for him to return. It's kind of a conclusion, right? We, we've been in a lot of places. It's a complicated passage. Um, hopefully I've explained it somewhere. Let me just remind you where we've been. So the, the Judaizers, they are preaching a legalism gospel. And Paul uses an intentional allegory from the law to show how the law itself points towards and reveals the gospel. And legalism, what it does is it ends up making you spiritually illegitimate like Ishmael. And legalism will lead to persecution. It will make you a persecutor of the true, true children of God. So what should we do? Well, we should rebrace, reject legalism and embrace Jesus. He died on the cross for our sins. He gave the ultimate of ultimate sacrifices. There aren't enough words in the human language to describe the greatness and the beauty and the wonder of what Jesus did and how he died on the cross for our sins. And the salvation that he brought for every single one of us is not earned by being good enough. 
I don't have a checklist for you that you must do these things and then you can get it. All you must do is admit you can't do it and ask Jesus for it and it's free. It's yours. And if you couldn't earn grace in the first place, as Christians, we need to stop trying to earn it today. Because you ain't good enough anyway. Reject legalism and just embrace Jesus. Invite our worship team to come up and lead us um, to sing songs of praise to the Savior who sets us free once more. God, I thank you. I thank you for who you are. I thank you for the freedom that you have given us. Lord, would you kill the legalism that lives in all of our hearts? Would you reveal to us where it is? Would you reveal to us um, where our pride has this convinced its spiritual maturity, but it's actually just persecution of our brothers and sisters? And would you help us repent of it? Would you remove it from us? Lord, would, would we be a people and would Tango would be a church that embraces the true gospel, that doesn't put other commands on people, but that just sticks close to your word? that doesn't put back the chains of the law on us, Lord, but just embraces and lives in our freedom that we have received from Jesus. And Lord, we thank you for the freedom that you have given us. We don't deserve it and we never could have earned it. But we are so grateful that you give it. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we are in a moment are going to sing our gratitude to you. Would you fill our hearts and would you hear it and receive it? We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Why don't you stand as we continue to worship through song. Our God is faithful and he is strong and most importantly, he is with us. Um, I'll uh, read our benediction for us this week, which is 2 Corinthians 3.14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of the Holy Spirit and the fellowship of this, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. God be with you. You're dismissed.